I really think it speaks volumes when you could stick to a company for 35 years. But I'm wondering, was there a time when you thought about leaving the company? Yeah, look, I've been lucky enough to be pursued by pretty well every investment bank in the financial world at some point or the other and multiple times by many of them. And I've always stuck with Rothschild because they've always given me enough responsibility, enough freedom and paid me just about well enough to make it worth my while to stick with where I am. And over time, I've obviously developed a loyalty towards the organization. I think probably more than anything else, the thing that has kept me at Rothschild is that the values of the firm are ones which I'm fully comfortable with as a Christian. From Lux Mundi, you're listening to Faith Collides. It's a show about industry leaders and the stories behind how faith plays into life at work. I'm Grace Wong. And on this episode, we have Akhil Sashak. He's a successful investment maker in the UK, working at Rothschild & Co., one of the largest financial services companies in the world. Akhil is known as the go-to grocer in M&A, meaning he specializes in deals and transactions in the food and beverage sector that will benefit his clients' business strategies. So what does that mean, really? Let's see what Akhil did for one of his clients, Coca-Cola. The company was looking to expand into the coffee business, and Akhil thought it would be a good idea to buy an existing brand like Costa Coffee. Costa was a long way behind Starbucks, but they took the view that they could add a much more value to a brand like Costa because it had the coffee credentials. And they noted that in the markets when it competed head to head with Starbucks, it typically outcompeted Starbucks. And so this was sitting in a British public company which had a hotel business and a coffee business, which weren't really very synergistic with one another. And an activist had already been campaigning and agitating with the parent company that was called Whitbread for the separation of the two businesses. So Costa needed to change its current structure, but it still had a high quality product with lots of room for growth in the global markets. For those reasons, Akhil thought Costa could be a good fit for Coca-Cola. So we decided that this was the time to knock on their door. Ultimately, it led after a long, protracted, painful and winding negotiation to the acquisition by the Coca-Cola company of Costa Coffee, which for the first time gave the Coca-Cola company a globally relevant brand, as well as a retail footprint in a number of geographies. I think the future will show what Coke can attain in the coffee category with a brand like Costa to deploy. Akhil was part of leading the successful transaction of Costa Coffee for Coca-Cola in 2019. He's been doing these big deals at Rothschild for brands like Weetabix, Asahi, and Ferrero for over 35 years. And as you may have guessed, that means he has a very busy work schedule. But he's made time to talk to us because he cares about sharing what matters most to him. And that goes beyond achieving career success and great wealth. And actually, Akhil didn't really need to try hard to get there as someone who was born into a pretty wealthy family. I had a, I suppose, rarefied and pretty privileged life because my father was the son of a very successful businessman and didn't have quite his father's work ethic, but uh, nevertheless was the child of enormous privilege. My grandfather had gone from Gujarat in India 
and started by selling animal hides. And he became a phenomenally successful businessman and owned a whole slew of plantations across East Africa. I was born in East Africa. It was a very, very different world from the world of today. This was the 1960s. It was post-colonial Tanzania or Tanganyika, as it was previously called in German East Africa before then. How did you get that name Akil and what does it mean? It's an Arabic name, which means wise, actually. The popular view is that name derives from one of the Prophet Muhammad's followers, a chap called Akil ibn Abi Tilib. But I think the true origin of the name is probably a frenetic translation of Achilles, one of the Greek heroes in the Trojan War. So take your pick between those two origins. I suspect it was Achilles phonetically got translated into Achille and then got subsumed into Arabic and Islamic culture. And your parents named you because of the Arabic reason or for the Greek origin? I come from a Muslim family background. I suspect it was the fact that it was a recognized Muslim name because it's history and association with one of the disciples of Prophet Muhammad. So did you also grow up with the Muslim faith? And how did your parents kind of raise you in it? I grew up with a nominal Muslim faith, which was more superstitious than meaningful. I believed in a God, but it was a kind of superstitious, unthinking belief without really ever addressing my mind to the implications of what it meant if I really believed in the existence of a God. I didn't really have any understanding of the theology underpinning Islam and was quite happy to operate in the kind of no man's land between acknowledging the existence of a God, but without really thinking through the implications of it. And I was quite content to live my life in that way. And I was sent off to a Jesuit boarding school at the age of five in a hill station, which tried to sort of replicate an English boarding school as far as it could in the middle of Africa. So even the weather where we were located was pretty British. And apart from myself and my brothers, everyone else was white and Anglo-Saxon, even though the school was in the middle of Africa. I started school there and only saw my parents a couple of times a year. From there, at the age of seven, I transitioned to a boarding school in England. Some kids, they go into boarding school and they kind of go crazy in that environment. Would you describe yourself as someone who was very studious? I wasn't especially conscious of working hard, certainly in my earlier years at school, but I was bright enough to make my way reasonably well academically. So what about career ambitions? Did you have any as a child? At a certain point, I thought about a career in the law and I was inspired by my mother's sister, who was one of the first women barristers in Britain. And she was a real inspiration for me in terms of what a career in the law might be about. And I admired and respected her enormously. And that drew me to the law and was probably what motivated me to go off to Oxford to study law. And when you got into Oxford, were you the first one in your family to go to that university? Was there a excitement from them or was it a type of like you should have gone there after all these years of boarding school? I was the first in my family to go to Oxford. But my parents' approach to my academic attainment was always expecting more than you attain. 
And if you've attained something, there's something else that you've missed out on. The response would be, well, why didn't you do that? (laughs) So I think they were very proud of my academic attainment at that point, but it wasn't super obvious in the way they uh, responded to me. While Akhil was at Oxford and studying for his final term in law, he got a rude awakening that made him think a bit more about his faith. And it was in the least expected way. He thought a girl was interested in him. I was uh, invited to go to a talk one Saturday evening by a young lady, and I understood her to be inviting me out for a date and therefore agreed and uh, was quite pleased with myself. And she actually took me to an evangelistic talk, which I don't remember much about other than being absolutely shocked that all these young men and women had nothing better to do on a Saturday evening than sit in a drab church hall listening to an evangelist. I heard the talk and for some reason or the other, I ended up talking to the speaker afterwards who said he wanted to meet me for tea and I said, why not? And ended up meeting with him. And this man started to talk to me in the way that I'd never really been spoken to before. He made me confront for the first time the reality that not having faith requires more faith than having faith in a God and the implausibility of believing in the universe being the product of random chance rather than a creator God. And so I found myself in in a place where for the first time I really confronted the reality that creation was the work of God and that there was really a God out there. And he took me from that to confronting the claims of Jesus and who he was and understanding for the first time that Jesus wasn't just a good man who lived 2,000 years ago who'd come to a sticky end, but was in fact God who provide us with the means to be reconciled to him. This faith in Jesus that was different from what your parents even believed about Jesus, how did they respond? They didn't respond well at all. And they saw my embracing of the Christian faith as a rejection of them and their culture rather than a rejection of their understanding of God. So there was a very hostile and very aggressive reaction. What types of things did they say? It was very vocal and I do remember, but I'd rather not get into that, other than to say that they really saw it as an affront and an offense to them and a rejection of them and everything that they had brought me up to believe and understand, which surprised me also because they were not particularly religious Muslims. So for them, it was more a cultural identity badge than a faith that they lived. But nevertheless, it was a pretty violent reaction. And I've had to live with a ruptured relationship with my parents ever since, I would say. It's a lot better than it was in the early years. But even today, when they're in their 80s, our relationship is still strained by my Christian faith. Akil's time at Oxford was a season of significant change. After becoming a Christian and navigating a strained relationship with his parents, another unexpected turn came in his career journey. Instead of continuing on a path to a law degree, Akil chose to pursue a job in the investment banking sector. The big investment banks at the time in the mid 80s would actually proactively come to recruit at Oxford. 
Rothschild, who I work for, they recruited me without me necessarily going out of my way. I mean, I had three or four investment banking offers. I remember, I think JP Morgan was one, Bank of America, Merrill Lynch was another. And I chose Rothschild above the others, mainly because I had some familiarity with the name from its associations with wine and the like which is not really very sophisticated reason for choosing them rather than others. But I think people post-rationalize the choices they make to sound a lot more noble than they probably were at the time. And I wouldn't say that I really understood even what a career in investment banking entailed when I committed to becoming a banker. With someone who is like, I want to do law, I spent the last four or five years understanding law. What attracted you? It was certainly uh, financially attractive. And I guess it was a lot more engaged with the business world. And I'd always been fascinated by business anyway. Your grandfather was a businessman. Exactly. So I kind of thought it'll give me the best of all worlds. From what little I understood of it, it seemed as if it might be quite intellectually stimulating, at least as stimulating as the law. And so when you joined Rothschild, what was it that you were doing? I started as a very junior analyst, crunching numbers at a time when we didn't have sort of the computing help that we have now. And you had to use your mental numerate capacity much more readily than we have to today. And it was hard work. And there was uh, none of the kind of work-life balance ethos that exists today. And so you either survived or fell by the wayside, I guess. And what kept me going was the fact that I found it very stimulating intellectually and never boring, but it was very, very hard work. Akil is the type of guy who, when it came to work, things just always worked out for him. He managed to climb the complex ladder of a prominent financial institution, but Akil would still have challenges he'd need to work through. Do you know someone like that? Or maybe you can relate to Akil because you excel in your work and career. You're happy where you are and with the opportunities that lie ahead. But perhaps the challenges you have is starting a family, finding your purpose and identity, or even sharing your faith. Coming up, we'll see what things Akil did at work that have kept him at Rothschild for 35 years and counting. But we'll also hear how Akil managed to raise four kids in a demanding work environment and become more vocal about his faith at work. Hey guys, it's me, Grace. I wanted to take this break to see if you'd like to buy me a coffee. It's been amazing working on this podcast from coffee shops, from my makeshift home studio, and with a team from all around the world. This passion project started two years ago when I felt it would be great to get some content out there that can get people of the Christian faith through storytelling to give us some career perspective and industry insight. I've learned a lot myself, and I hope you have too. If you have any feedback or ideas on how we could do things better, please feel free to reach out to us. And if you're in a position to treat someone, please check out how you can buy me a coffee to support Faith Collide's podcast. You can get the link from our show notes. Otherwise, we hope you can keep listening and be blessed. Welcome back. After graduating from Oxford, Akhil Sashak decided to take a job at Rothschild in the UK for its prestige, compensation, and to be intellectually stimulated at work. Meanwhile, he kept his newfound faith to himself and continued to go to church, 
where he'd meet his wife, Joy. I met my wife at the church I started attending in the city, and she was one of my Bible study leaders in the Bible study group that I joined very soon after joining the church that I was in. And I remember the first conversation with her was when I introduced myself to her and she said, well, that's a funny name. Where are you from? (laughs) (laughs) So she's, she's, I'm taking that she's white. Yes, (laughs) she's English. She's English and she's been on a journey as well as a result, as you can imagine. And I remember also that uh, I was only the second non-white employee in Rothschild. And one of the things that I always found amusing was that they were so unfamiliar with people of color in the firm that there was only one other colored person in the whole firm. And he sat in Hong Kong, but it still caused people to confuse me with him. (laughs) When they were... When the other guy who was of colour was in Hong Kong and I was in London, which I always found vaguely amusing. Obviously, the world is very different now. Wow. I mean, what was that like to experience that type of treatment? First of all, I think I had the privilege of growing up in surroundings where for most of my life, me and my brothers at school were the only coloured people in our environment. And even my Oxford College at the time had maybe one or two other non-Caucasian people. And so I was accustomed to being in that kind of an environment. I therefore always proceeded on the assumption, maybe naively, maybe helpfully, that if I suffered any setbacks, it was because of something other than my color. I think it's very easy to fall into the trap of explaining away all your setbacks in terms of racism. Uh, And I think from that point of view, I think it was a healthy mindset to go into the kind of career I went into at the time, assuming that it was nothing to do with my color. If I didn't get a promotion I was expecting at a particular point in time. That's a very interesting view that you had because in the US they talk about race a lot and how your color can set you back. But in that time, you were already like, I'm not going to let that be an excuse for why I can't. Yeah, look, I mean, I'm sure I was experiencing racism, but if it was racism, it wasn't anything I could do much about if it was institutionalized racism that I was experiencing. So I just assumed it was something else, which I could do something about. And I guess that mindset probably allowed me to overcome things which I might have been defeated by otherwise. And what about showing your faith at work? I was a very timid Christian when I first came to understand that it was all true. And I went to great lengths to hide my faith in my workplace because I had this view that it would adversely impact the progress of my career if people thought I was a Christian. And I suppose fell for the worldview that, uh, you know, if you really took the Christian faith seriously, you must be a little bit soft in the head. And it certainly wasn't compatible with success as an investment banker. And in a different way, I guess what it meant was that I was more afraid of man than I was of God at that stage in my life. Despite feeling different at work because of the color of his skin and what he believed, those things didn't keep Akil from doing well in his career. And he ultimately knew he came from a background of privilege that gave him a leg up. And that was something he had to reconcile with his faith. I lived in a nice house and I was sent to a good school. But my father, who didn't inherit his his own father's business acumen, managed to work his way through most of what he'd inherited during his life. 
And so by the time I became an adult, there wasn't much spare cash for him to throw in my direction. But I found that very quickly as I started work that I was good at what I was doing and therefore I got paid well. What's getting paid well at that time? When I started in 1985 was £9,000 a year, which at the time was a lot of money. Converted to dollars was probably like 15000 And then I got a bonus on top of that, which would have been maybe 50% of my salary. And so I very quickly started to find myself in a position where I was able to service a reasonably sizable mortgage, get myself an apartment, uh, then a house. So how old were you when you were able to do that? I was about 24 when I bought my first property. Then I leapfrogged progressively to larger and larger properties. And, you know, got to a point where I had more money than I needed to meet my family's basic needs. And so was able to indulge in extravagances like nice holidays and the like. And I did find myself confronted with the question of why I was accumulating this wealth and for what purpose. Did something happen that kind of made you realize life like this is going to be fleeting? I think it was more a conviction by the study of scripture and the Bible and examples of men of faith with wealth throughout history and coming to recognition that my money wasn't mine, but God's money doesn't mean like I live like a monk, by the way, but in everything that I spend anything on, I'm stewarding it on God's behalf. I was really accountable to God for how I deployed all my money. It's a daily struggle. And It's only through God's help that I can sort of more often than not make a decent job of navigating all of this. But the great news about the Christian faith, I think, is at the end of the day, even though we're all going to fail in all sorts of ways all the time, the fact that at the end of the day, my relationship with God doesn't depend on anything that I can do or not do or you can do or fail to do. As Akil learned to be faithful to God with how he used his wealth, His job continued to take a lot of his time and energy as he got promoted within Rothschild. For example, traveling to see his clients became all-consuming. I was traveling on average two, three days a week, every week, and using the plane as my hotel bed a lot of the time and would not infrequently go to Shanghai or Tokyo for a day or Atlanta or Mexico City or wherever. And so that probably had an impact on your family life. How are you able to manage that with your wife and just having more and more kids? My wife is very strong Christian faith and has been absolutely fundamental to my faith journey. It wasn't easy, but I think a bit more money meant that we could have some fantastic holidays. And we took our holidays very seriously. And I always made the choice of going on holiday on our own with just my nuclear family my wife and my children rather than going with extended family or with friends because what then ends up happening is you go on holiday but you don't actually spend your time with the children but you spend time or with your own family you end up spending time with the friends that you took along with you or the other adults so I made that choice and I think that made a big difference actually in terms of helping me to really build relationships with my children of the kind that would otherwise have been more difficult to establish being so distracted by my work, but also a wonderful wife that was uh, able to be a full-time mother to the children. I certainly don't have it all figured out and I get it wrong all the time as a husband, a father, an employer, colleague in every way. You know, and I'd say my reliance on God is fundamental. 
And I have had the privilege of having clients all over the world, literally everywhere from Africa, Asia, America, Europe, and they've had to navigate lots of different cultures. And yeah, there's a slightly different way of operating in different cultural contexts. And I think you've got to be very alive to the different cultural contexts of the different places in which you do business. But I've always found it terrifically enriching thing to do in terms of doing business everywhere. Yeah, not everyone gets to do that. That is part of what has made your work exciting, I think, and stimulating that you mentioned from the, it's your first day of joining. I'd say the most culturally challenging experience was the first time I went to Japan, I guess, sometime in the mid 2000s. I remember being very, very struck by how radically different the culture, values, way of operating in Japan is from the UK. I mean, you know, at its simplest, you're engaging with a Japanese business counterpart and they don't say no to what you're proposing. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're therefore agreeing to do what you're suggesting. It's just that culturally, they prefer not to be as direct as we're accustomed to being. So, you know, you've just got to adapt, I think, to the different cultural contexts of how business is conducted. Akil was in Japan because of Asahi, a company well known for its beer. But in the 1990s, Asahi started to transform its business. And at one point, they reached out to financial advisory companies like Rothschild to help them. This is how Akil worked to help Asahi diversify their business. Its business was far too dependent on Japan, and they decided to embark on a series of geographic diversifications, most of which I've supported them in, acquiring a whole slew of brands, including Peroni, Grolsch, Meantime, Pilsner, Urkel, etc., and have now reached a point where over 50% of the profits of Asahi today come from outside Japan. And when I started working with them, the business was almost entirely Japanese. So that's another great example of a corporate transformation that I've been a part of for a long time. Akil is now a partner and the global head of consumer at Rothschild & Co. He reached the top of where he wanted to be and managed to continue thriving during this pandemic. It's amazing how much of business has been able to adjust to the fact that you have to operate out of your home on a virtual basis for months at a time, as we've all had to do. There are businesses that are involved directly in travel or hospitality or, or retail that have obviously been impacted by it. But I think people were anticipating that doing business would be much more dislocated than it seems to have been. Let me give you an example of the latest deal that I've been working on which actually is also a Coca-Cola deal. So the largest Coca-Cola bottler in Europe is called Coca-Cola European Partners, and they are in the process of acquiring the largest Asian Coke bottler, which is called Coca-Cola Amatil. And it's a deal that um, I negotiated without leaving my desk in my lockdown home in October originally where we agreed a $11 billion deal to acquire this Asian Coca-Cola bottler. As time passed, although the, the deal was fully supported by the board of the company that we were acquiring, it became apparent that they were no longer comfortable supporting this deal. And shareholders were saying, we'd taken advantage of the fact that their share price was at an artificially low level because of the effect of the pandemic and that we needed to be prepared to pay more. 
a bunch of hedge funds moved into the share register and started clamoring for more money as well. And it became apparent that if we carried on with the deal as we were planning to do, we would potentially not get approval of the target company shareholders to the deal when it was put to their shareholders meeting. And so we ended up having to have a very painful further set of negotiations, which resulted in us coming up with a increased offer. And it looks like the shareholders feel that this gives them a good enough price for them to support it. I mean, there were lots of other complexities involved with the deal. But, uh, you know, that's a real life example of uh, something I've been doing in the middle of the pandemic. So how do you think it's going to go forward with this pandemic? My expectation is that ultimately we'll get back to a normality that is much closer to what it was than not. I think those who take the view that it's transformed uh, our lives out of all recognition, I think are going to find that their judgment is misplaced. I think that, that what it will have done is to accelerate the trends that were already there. For example, with the engagement with technology, I think what we've achieved in a year is the kind of transition in terms of engagement with technology and e-commerce and digital media that would otherwise have taken 40 years to achieve. And I think everyone has acquired the tools and the know-how to engage with the world digitally as a result of the pandemic, and they're not going to unlearn those skills. I do think what has been very traumatizing for a lot of people with the pandemic is that they've been confronted with the proximity of death. And as a Christian, death is something that I more than get my head around. Uh, I know what lies ahead of me and look forward to it rather than fear it. And they also, to the extent the pandemic underscores all that is wrong in this world and this life, I'm not destabilized by that because that's what the God of the Bible tells us to expect about this world and this life. And so uh, I see what is happening is absolutely consistent with that and not in any way indicative of a God that has abandoned us or the idea that there is no God at all as a result of what's happening. I really think it speaks volumes when you could stick to a company for 35 years. But I'm wondering, was there a time when you thought about leaving the company? Yeah, look, I've been lucky enough to be pursued by pretty well every investment bank in the financial world at some point or the other and multiple times by many of them. And I've always stuck with Rothschild because they've always given me enough responsibility, enough freedom and paid me just about well enough to make it worth my while to stick with where I am. And over time, I've obviously developed a loyalty towards the organization. I think probably more than anything else, the thing that has kept me at Rothschild is that the values of the firm are ones which I'm fully comfortable with as a Christian. I think that if I find myself in a work environment where I was asked to do things and make choices that I was going to struggle with from a faith point of view, I would have long since have left. And I always wondered whether some of the other places I could have gone to would have allowed me to do that. So, you know, I think at every level you need to put an integrity screen on what you're doing. But I'd say it's more put to the test as a senior guy than it is as a junior person. 
you know, I have more confidence in terms of being able to stand by what I believe to be true as a more mature Christian now than when I first became a banker, which was much more difficult because, uh, I, as I said earlier, I was uh, not a very confident Christian and also had no confidence in how to handle myself if anyone should know that I'm a Christian. And so was there a time when you started to realize, I do want people to know I'm a Christian at work? Was there something that kind of triggered that or that made you want to be more outspoken? I think it was a gradual process. At some point, I remember also reading a book called Gospel Patrons, and I became more convicted at that point in time that actually serving God was not something that I needed to do just on a Sunday or I could push out until I retired but what God wanted me to do in the here and now, and that he'd raise me up and put me in the position I was in as a banker for his purpose rather than for my purpose. And obviously, I as a senior person can get away with saying things and doing things that I wouldn't expect a junior person to say and do in the same way. You've got to be prepared to handle yourself in a way that's appropriate to your position in the firm. But I also take the view that if I'm not prepared to stand up for what I believe, then how can I possibly expect junior people ever to be able to do so? And it makes it easier, I think, in an organization for junior people to stand up for their Christian faith if there are senior people in that organization that are prepared to do so and are allowed to do so. So I kind of feel more pressure than I ever did to stand up for the truth of the Christian faith and be prepared to proclaim it in an appropriate way with the position I find myself in, which God has put me in, in my workplace. Akil Sashak has come a long way for someone who was timid about his faith to realizing how important it is to be open about it. It's something he's grappled with at his university, something that strained his relationship with his parents and kept him from telling others about his faith at work for fear of judgment. How do you feel about sharing your faith in the workplace? And just how real is this faith in your life? Would you be willing to give up a relationship a job or promotion, money, or even face death without fear. For Akil, who continued to work out his faith, it's worth giving up anything that stands in the way of his belief. If there's something holding you back, what is it? And what can you do to figure it out? Feel free to send us an audio message on Anchor or email us on our website, faithcollides.com, if you want to share how you feel and how this story might have impacted you. I'm Grace Wong, bringing you stories that can revive your work week. Hope you have a blessed day. If you like what you're listening, please subscribe to get future episodes and support us with a review. Faith Collides is hosted and produced by me. This episode is co-produced and edited by Josh Batson, audio mixing by Josh Batson and Joshua Huang.